For much of this past year, it seemed as though our policymakers have been stuck between two conflicting priorities, protect public health or keep the economy running. At times, their guidance has been confusing. Knowing how people make decisions can help policies make sense to the people they're supposed to help. Often, there are simple changes that will take our policies from frustrating to easy and helpful. Behavioral Insights is about knowing how people come to their decisions. This episode, we're joined by the Director of the Canadian Office of the Behavioral Insights Team, Sasha Tregobov, to turn a behavioral lens to recovering from the pandemic. We talk about how the pandemic is different from other crises we've been through, what a nudge is, and how it can help us to recover better. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. My guest this episode is Sasha Tregobov, Director of the Canadian Office of the Global Organization Behavioral Insights Team. Behavioral Insights is an approach to policymaking that combines insights from psychology, cognitive science, and social science with rigorous testing methodology to help identify how humans actually make choices. Sasha is going to talk to us about how he sees behavioral insights playing a key role in helping countries and organizations recover better as we emerge from the pandemic. Sasha, welcome to Bright Future. Thank you so much for having me. Sasha, your organization was founded around the time of the last big economic crisis, the 2008 financial crisis. In over 10 years of working with governments and organizations, your organization, Behavioral Insights Team, has become synonymous with this practice of behavioral insights. Can you help us to understand what the difference is and what the commonalities are between the practice of behavioral insights and the behavioral insights team? I'm happy to help clarify. It is quite confusing. The organization that I represent was founded in 2010, just as this recovery from the 2008 financial crisis was taking hold. And we were actually created as part of the British government. At the time, it was this very novel idea. Let's bring a bunch of people who understand the science of how human beings process information, make decisions and behave into the heart of government so that we can make better policy and deliver better services. This model that we pioneered ended up becoming quite popular across governments, nonprofit organizations and private businesses all over the world. And this term behavioral insights that we had originally used to refer to ourselves gained currency as a reference to this applied behavioral science discipline. We are the behavioral insights team, but the field of behavioral insights is now much, much broader than us. And we're delighted that that's the case. What are some of the most important but overlooked differences in the COVID crisis that we're currently facing from a behavioral lens when you compare them to other crises that we've seen in the past? And what do you think that that means for our recovery? I think the differences are quite stark when we compare it to previous economic crises. COVID-19 has affected our habits and our behaviors much more deeply, disrupting our daily lives to a degree that's hard to fathom, or at least would have been hard for me to fathom uh, before the onset of the crisis. We're not just seeing job losses, reductions in income, declining confidence as we see in other economic crises. We're seeing quite extreme shifts in where and how a lot of people work, when and with whom we socialize, how we shop and even get groceries. This disruption to our core habits 
from a behavioral science perspective, does create a window of opportunity for new and perhaps even positive trends or shifts to emerge in ways that perhaps other crises haven't. Just as one example, flexible working arrangements that have been necessitated may become much more commonplace as the recovery begins and deepens. This window of opportunity that's being created is important because of some of the other ways that COVID-19 is different. This crisis has shown us how much we need to make quite significant changes in our society, in our economy. It's always the case that economic downturns have disproportionate impacts with greater losses being felt by those who are already experiencing hardship, those who are at risk. But the equity implications, I think, have been even more pronounced. We know that people of color in Canada are much more likely to be exposed to COVID, to suffer much more serious consequences if they contract it. We know that women are seeing very large increases in unpaid work, having to reduce their hours, which is limiting some of the progress that we've been making on gender equality. I think this crisis is more deeply disruptive and therefore creates greater opportunities for new habits and behaviors to emerge. But it also shows us how important it is that those new approaches do emerge because of what it's revealing about some of the inequalities that are limiting our well-being and our growth. We've talked on this program about various aspects of the challenges that you've seen in terms of the equity and the impact piece, notwithstanding the current threat that COVID-19 and the variants are posing to our lives and our economy, vaccines have been improved. And eventually we will be in a world where everyone who wants a vaccine will have had it, which means business leaders are really already starting to think about that post-recovery economy. Organizations like yours, like ours, are also thinking about what does that mean and how do we shape it? What are the questions that you hope business leaders are asking about how they're going to be preparing their workplaces or their workers for a post-pandemic world? It is a question that it's hard not to think about almost personally. As you said, I'm thinking a lot about what's it going to look like for us as the recovery deepens, as, for example, we return to the office or have the option of returning to the office. I'm reflecting a lot on the status quo of work, the way that work has been designed at least for a lot of us, it's exclusive of anyone who can't work full-time hours away from home. There's this notion that you go to work. Are business leaders thinking about this as an opportunity for a real change in work policy? COVID for me anyways has been like hardwiring in a new normal. At first it was very difficult to use these video conference platforms and collaboration tools and figure out how to get on the same page with people when you're not actually together. But now we've built up that capital, those habits. We've got our second monitor at home. We've got our collaboration tools. A lot of the one-time costs or frictions have been overcome. There's a lot of potential benefit in revisiting some of those core assumptions about what it means to be a great employee. And it's not just pro-social, right? It's not just about helping our employees balance everything they've got going on in their lives with everything that we need from them in the workplace. There are a lot of tangible business benefits too. I know certainly we've seen aspects of how we work together actually improve. There was an interesting study a few years ago with a NASDAQ listed quite a large Chinese travel agency. And they were really interested about the potential impact of a shift to work from home. 
And they worked with some researchers to actually structure an experiment around this. And they got a bunch of people to volunteer to work from home. And those people were randomly assigned to either, oh, sorry, you got to keep working at the office or you get to work from home. This experiment took place over nine months and led to quite a substantial 13% increase in productivity. Fewer sick breaks, fewer time away from taking calls. These were workers who were travel agency taking calls, quieter working environment, more productive. And when the sort of experiment ended, a lot of the people chose to keep working from home and other people who weren't initially working from home started to do it. And overall, the business saw quite a large, about 20% increase in its overall productivity level. There's, at least on this one dimension of return to normal, where we should challenge that assumption a little bit, both to support employees and maybe even improve the business. What are the challenges that you think organizations have faced in the past that present themselves as opportunities now to be fixed? I think about three sets of challenges and opportunities. The first thing that comes to mind is a problem that can really be addressed quite practically from a behavioral science perspective. Is a suite of problems that a researcher in Toronto, Dilip Soman, describes as last mile problems. And we think about this sometimes in terms of the notion of sludge. Sometimes businesses, government organizations make it way too hard for their employees, their customers, their users to do the thing they want them to do. You've got these complex sign-up forms. You've got to submit multiple documents. You've got to call one phone number and work through an interactive voice response menu to just find the thing to raise your credit card limit or whatever the case might be. And all of these small and unnecessary frictions that we refer to as sludge can be addressed by nudges that aim to simplify and streamline experiences. And they can have really outsized effects. I know we did one very, very simple project with the UK tax authority where we removed one click from a digital process for people to file their taxes on. The government had been sending folks that needed to file their taxes a letter, and that letter had a URL on it that took them to a web page, and they had to click the first link on that web page to file their taxes on. All we did is we changed the URL, so it led directly to the form. So literally taking one click out of a process, and we saw a 24% increase in timely completion. So think about how many moments like that are being unnecessarily created by businesses and government organizations that just throw up these barriers to people in the last mile of completing a request, accessing a service, buying a product. Sasha, how do you define nudge? We've heard it uh, referred to before. What's your definition of what a nudge is? I think the terminology of nudge has almost become a little bit of a problem for the behavioral science community or the behavioral insights community, but it is an important concept. And the way it's defined originally by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler in their book, Nudge, that really created a lot of the impetus that sparked our organization being created, is that it's a change to the environment in which people make choices. So the choice architecture that produces predictable or reliable changes in behavior without changing people's economic incentives or forbidding them any options. It's this idea that the environment, the physical environment, the social environment, the emotional environment in which we're making decisions has this really significant impact on what we choose. By shaping that environment, 
or thinking of oneself as an architect of that environment, you can design smarter experiences, smarter policies, services. A nudge is the change to that choice environment that doesn't create an economic incentive or forbid an option. What are some of the insights that you've found from researching how to advance the vaccination programs that you think could be relevant to the Canadian audience? We've been really, really focused on this issue over the last couple of months doing research in the UK, the US, and here in Canada to help promote vaccination, given how critical that is to just sort of getting back to where we want to be as a country, quite frankly. We've been focused in particular on why are people hesitant about the vaccine and what motivational strategies, what messaging in particular can we use to address that hesitancy and make sure that people are making decisions with really good information. For example, we just finished a study that we ran in the U.S., 20,000 people testing out a variety of different messages to understand which of these messages increase confidence in the vaccine, that it's safe, that it's effective, and willingness to get vaccinated. In other words, do you say after you've seen this messaging that you're going to get vaccinated or not? And we've actually found a number of strategies that are quite effective in addressing vaccine confidence and willingness to get vaccinated or intention to get vaccinated. The number one message that we found to be most effective goes something like this. Your loved ones need you. Get the COVID-19 vaccine to make sure that you can be there for them. And so that's really this pro-social message about other people, not oneself, that we found to be quite effective across a wide range of COVID-19 behaviors. What's interesting here is that we say your loved ones need you, make sure you can be there for them. So it is talking about you will be protected, your own health will be protected, but it's in service of others. The second one focuses on people's concerns about the vaccine process and safety and efficacy. And so it says, doctors and nurses have decided to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Now they recommend that you do too. Talk to your doctor to find out more about why it's right for you. People have quite a high trust in the medical profession overall, including people that are vaccine hesitant. We really do look to our trusted healthcare providers for information on stuff like this, and that's trying to invoke that. Third, we say, now we have the chance to return to the people and places we love. Let's get our lives back. Sign up to get the COVID-19 vaccine. So that's all about imagining that future where we get to see our friends again, we get to hang out and go to restaurants. And then last, and again, this is about more the sort of safety concerns, uh, which are quite prominent in terms of vaccine hesitancy. There is a fair bit of misinformation, unfortunately, out there about safety. And also people are concerned about side effects. This says the COVID-19 vaccine was tested with 70,000 people. Now millions will have gotten it. When it's your turn, you can feel confident that it is safe and effective. So those are four distinct but effective messaging strategies that increase motivation to be vaccinated across the population and with people that are more likely to be vaccine hesitant. Is there something that you look at when you think about areas where behavioral insights or some of these behavioral analyses are not good fits? I do think that there is quite a broad playing field in which behavioral insights can be applied and can provide value. Fundamentally, so much of what we do is about making decisions and behavior. 
most domains, household savings, behaviors, economic policy, health, public health, all of these broad domains can really benefit from a behavioral insights approach. But there are certain types of problems that are much less well suited. And two of them jump to mind immediately. The first one is where people don't really have good choices to make. We often think about our work as helping people make better decisions for themselves, creating an environment in which people would make the decision that they would make in their very best state of mind. If they had all the time and all the resources and all the emotional equanimity that they could ever want, what choice would they make and how can we help them do that? The problem is, what if they don't have a good choice? What if the inherent incentives are sort of misaligned? For them, what if they're being pulled in multiple directions or simply don't have the resources they need to make good choices for themselves? That's an area where behavioral insights approaches probably have a little bit less to contribute. Is there a specific example that you might give? Yeah, I think a lot about poverty, material scarcity. There have been a lot of quite interesting and quite thoughtful studies run to figure out how can we help people that have quite a low income to save, to have some sort of rainy day cushion. And there have been all sorts of very clever ideas about this. Can we integrate this into short-term borrowing products? Can we build in a savings component and real thoughtfulness? And we find very small effects, if any effects at all, because the reality is just there needs to be greater income, right? So whether that's through our cash transfer system and sort of quote unquote social safety net, whether it's through minimum wage practices or other of these traditional economic policy instruments, it's one of those areas where I feel like that's where the big wins lie. It's not on shaping that environment in which people make choices. I'm sure there are many others, but that's one that comes to mind for me. The second area where behavioral Insights may be useful, but nudges tend to be less effective. And this really brings us back to COVID, is when habits are very, very deeply ingrained. One of the areas where I think we've been really quite unsuccessful as a community of behavioral science researchers, applied thinkers, is, for example, shifting people's commuting habits. There's all this stuff, the environmental impacts of single car commutes, it's really high. I live in Toronto, a ton of commuting, especially pre-COVID. It's expensive. People spend a bunch of time being very irritated in their car. It's one of these areas where there are all sorts of very cleverly designed interventions that use theories that are very well proven in other domains. And we just see again and again and again, virtually no effect from these nudges. And I believe, and I think I can speak for my colleagues too, that the reality is when a behavior or a habit is so deeply ingrained, it's going to take a lot more than a nudge. What's so interesting to me about COVID, and I think where it sort of creates that opportunity, and I'm not trying to say that there's a silver lining to a global public health crisis that's killed tens of thousands of people in Canada. There is no silver lining. But as we look forward towards recovery, the disruption in habits that we're seeing around things like commuting behaviors create this opportunity where behavioral science approaches may be much more effective than they have in the past because there is this window, this fresh start opportunity has been created through the external environment. The question is how do business leaders, how do organizations take this moment? 
I think back to common books that everyone has read or is aware of outliers where Malcolm Gladwell talks about 10,000 hours to become a master or atomic habits where a 1% change in your habits repeated on a daily basis can have significant positive or negative impacts. We've had 365 days almost, you know, we're very close to the one year anniversary of the first lockdown. It sounds to me like that's almost long enough to have created new habits or at least to have significantly disrupted the old behaviors. Is that true? This is my biggest question. So I'll just be blunt, I'll be transparent. We don't know. We lack both this empirical evidence and theoretical models to really answer that question, how long is long enough? Partly because this is such an unprecedented level of disruption in our daily lives. I'm sure that some new lasting habits will be formed, whether it's shifts in flexible working behaviors, whether it's maybe people wearing a mask when they have a cold, now that we all have them in our house or apartment. We can say that there's some precedent around these things. Disruptions and shock to the usual way of doing things can sometimes result in real shifts in behavior. In 2015, there was a strike in the subway in London. There were some studies done and they showed that about 5%, about one in 20 commuters during this time found a different and better route that they stuck with. The commuting habits of about a quarter million people in London were permanently shifted by this disruption of this strike. So there's reason to believe that yes, a year is long enough because that strike lasted a week, but we don't know how far that carried. I could equally tell you some compelling story about how much we want to rebound to our old habits, how much we miss them, and how quickly we'll snap back to them. The last point that I want to add here is applying behavioral insights, nudges, or other forms of intervention inspired by the science of how people make decisions and behave may be able to help encourage or discourage these types of behavioral shifts or habit changes. There was just a study published in China during the initial recovery after their lockdown where informing individuals about their neighbors' plans to visit restaurants increases the fraction of those people who visited restaurants by about 40%. Simply by informing people that, hey, according to this survey, your neighbors, now that the lockdown is over, now that it's safe, this is when they had reached zero cases for over two weeks, I believe. Your neighbors are doing this. That prompted people to think, oh, I'm going to start doing that too. What is government going to do? What is the business community, frankly, going to do to help those folks get going again? It often feels like policymakers are stuck between two conflicting agendas. You've got the public health, public safety agenda, lock it down, stay at home, be safe. And then you've got the other side, which is the economic component, which is we need to make sure that our economies are there. We need to make sure that the shops and the businesses and the individuals have jobs and have businesses to go back to when this is over. That contrast seems to be one of the biggest challenges that policymakers and governments are facing. What are the kinds of insights that you might draw on when they think about putting out some of these policies or the public messaging around these things that, quite frankly, can be contradictory? and so difficult to understand which is the most resonant message at this moment. I'll give you a little bit of a narrow answer because I'm not an epidemiologist or physician and I can't really comment on what's safe for people or businesses to be doing. 
And similarly, I'm not a formally trained economist. From my own expertise and the expertise of my organization, there are a lot of things that government is doing to keep people safe and encourage important public health behaviors, but also to keep businesses going that are not optimally designed from the perspective of how do people think and make decisions. In Canada, there have been quite a number of new programs and supports rolled out to businesses that are really struggling. In general, government sees itself playing a role in supporting economic growth, and especially now. But what we find a lot is that sometimes the ways that they design these programs and supports don't really reflect how business owners and operators think and behave. There's this general sense that people will make themselves aware of all of the government programming, understand which of those supports are most valuable to them, and then follow through every step of a process, sometimes quite complex application forms with complex eligibility criteria. But there's basically this field of dreams, if we build it, they will come type of mentality. And I don't think that really recognizes the competing demands for attention that business owners and operators are facing, the number of priorities that they're struggling to deal with every day. If government could rely a lot more on peer networks of not being the sole messenger, of enabling businesses to talk to each other, especially when they're not direct competitors, if they could find safe data privacy compliant ways to keep your information and pre-populate on different forms if you're applying for three different support programs, how much can those two or three hours mean to a business owner if we can just pre-populate their information from one to another? I know these things sound simple and basic, but again, our research just shows that they can have a really outsized effect. And then the other thing is there have been long-standing issues in Canada, just frankly reading some conference board research around investments in R&D and productivity growth and innovation. Upfront costs are a substantial barrier to business investment, especially small and medium business investment, including when people are having trouble accessing finance. That cash flow concern is paired with what we call present bias, the tendency to value the here and now over the long term. That helps explain a lot of this underinvestment we see in research and development. The human brain just simply isn't geared towards thinking about 10 or 15 years down the road. We got to think about how do we deliver incentives for R&D? Why do we make you incur that cost? And then a year later at tax time, you get that money back. In the UK, they've got this advanced assurance program for first-time R&D tax relief where they take out that uncertainty, they take out that presence bias, and they give you that money up front. COVID has accelerated job transition changes and job changes for folks. We have hundreds of thousands of Canadians who are out of work and are looking at whether their jobs are going to come back or if they need to start thinking about new jobs. And we've looked at this from a longer term perspective in terms of what are the kinds of jobs that might be disappearing through automation? And how do we identify the skill sets that people have in current jobs to help them identify where their other jobs might be? Your organization has done some work on ways that mental models are limiting people when they think about where my job is and is it gonna come back? What are the kinds of things that you think individuals who are looking at their own situations and saying, well, how do I get back in the workforce? What are the kinds of things that I can do to make sure that I don't get made redundant or laid off again in the future, whether it's from COVID 
or in the future from an automation this is one of those places where behavioral science has quite a bit to offer beyond the current models and approaches that are being adopted. It's absolutely true to say that people that are out of work and looking for work or people whose employment is at risk and are thinking about the future, like everyone else, they rely on mental shortcuts, sometimes more formally called cognitive biases and heuristics, in order to make decisions about what training opportunities to pursue, what jobs to apply for what job search activities to engage in. In particular, we know that they prefer and prioritize job options that are familiar, that are similar to the things that they've already been doing in very intuitive ways. We have a bias towards the status quo, and we really rely on information that comes to mind very easily. And that affects us when we're thinking about our career pathways. Human beings are risk averse, and there's very good reason for that. But sometimes it can lead us astray. It means we may not put ourselves out there and apply for a job or a training that feels like a bit of a stretch for us. And there's things there that can be done by employers and employment service providers as well. But the part of that is just us and our psychology. And we often focus on pathways that don't require a lot of upfront effort or investment. Again, this present bias or short-term bias, as we like to call it. We might not be drawn to upskilling or gaining new skills and credentials to the same extent that we might be attracted to, hey, this job is really similar, even though maybe there's not a great outlook for it because of automation or other trends. I know what that is, and I can go for it, and I can do it, and I can do that right away. Those are some of the factors that are going to be really challenging and important to tackle from multiple perspectives. And make sure that those jobs are going to become redundant and that people have to go back through the whole thing again. What makes you optimistic about our path back through recovery. I am personally optimistic that the fault line revealed by this pandemic is going to really shift the thinking and action of leaders in the public and private sectors. To me, the story of COVID has been a story of the sort of differential impacts, economic, health, psychosocial in Canada, but globally. It's been a story of inequality, and I think we've been confronted with that inequality in a really, really dramatic way. But I'm optimistic that COVID has created openings for changes in behavior that will contribute to tackling these issues in very material and practical way. And I keep coming back to this notion of flexible working as an approach towards greater workplace equity, the reality of people having caregiving responsibilities, but also having a lot to contribute. There are going to be long-term trends in employer openness to that type of flexibility that could yield huge benefits. And I'm optimistic that behavioral insights can contribute in some meaningful way to Canada's COVID recovery, whether it's tackling those last mile problems related to accessing supports for businesses and individuals, whether it's improving the quality of employment services to help people stay motivated and find jobs that are really good jobs. Even the role of behavioral insights in encouraging Canadians to get vaccinated so they can get back to their lives to their work and to ensure that they can take care of the people that they love. Sasha, it's been great talking with you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. You've been listening to Bright Future from the Conference Board of Canada. If you like what you hear on this series, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. Our production team includes Andy Joy, who's our writer, and Sarah Mels, who supports in audio editing. Ideas were contributed by Michael Jones, Rob Collins, and Aaron Brophy. 
I'm Michael Bassett, and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the conference board's opinion or research. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, research, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.